we get stuck around existence and non-existence. We get stuck in it is or it isn't. And those seem to be the only options, right? That's actually the only way mind can conceive. Mind can conceive of existence, something is, and mind can conceive of non-existence, something isn't. But then Buddha says, isn't it? That willingness, or that encouragement to, to, well, mostly to not get stuck in either position. So how can we explore existence and non-existence? When it's tricky, right? Because our way of conceiving can only go to one of two places. It is or it isn't. Or to make it more personal, I am or I'm not. What I am and what I'm not. It doesn't seem possible to have another option there. And indeed, what we've been calling with the other types of clinging, the worldly view says the worldly view emphasizes existence. Emphasize looking at what is. I emphasize the uh, you know the reification. You know that word reification? To give something uh, solidity or realness. And the way we conceive and the way we point out things and the way we relate to things gives them that sense of a kind of affirmation for their being. I'm Martin. You're so-and-so. This is Gaia House. Oh, yes, okay. Like this, that. It is. And then what we've been calling the, what I've been calling a bit rudely maybe, the uptight pseudo-spiritual view that, correspond, that is the kind of swings back to the opposite position from the worldly view, often says it isn't. And so, whereas everyday mind, worldly view, seems to confirm the things that appear in reality or as reality, the pseudo-spiritual view tends to deny what appears in reality. And says, oh, this is all illusion. It's one kind of common, particularly the Eastern spiritual views do this. It's all maya. You know that word, Sanskrit word. It's all, it's all an illusion. It's all illusory. Or the Buddhist view swings back from "it is" or "I am" or "there is something," and again to make it personal, "there's me." It seems to be obvious to everyday mind. And the Buddhist view swings to the other view and says, "No, no, there's not. There's not me. There's no self." And it's maybe worth pointing out here for the sake of the poor Buddhists among you that the Buddha never said anywhere there is no self. Buddha didn't want to get stuck in existence or in non-existence. wants us to explore. So I hope by way of some reflections this afternoon to explore And the exploring is delicate because we're seeking to explore without getting stuck in either position, which is kind of inevitable. 
language only works in terms of it is or it isn't. Right? So we have to be careful. We have to feel for what we're exploring rather than just trying to figure it out. All that we can do with figuring out is end up with it is or it isn't. Clear so far? (laughs) So we can start to look at the ways we identify or in other words, who we take ourselves to be. Remember on the first evening I talked about these three classes of clinging as I want, I think, and who I take myself to be. And the ways in which those aren't just little ideas, oh, I'm Martin, I'm male, I'm white, I'm British, I'm so-and-so, such-and-so, so-and-so. They end up being, you know, in the same way as the views about the way life is we spoke about last night, unconsciously really shaping our sense of the world. The sense of who I take myself to be is a, there's a, a whole process of, that informs who I am, at least uh, conceptually, who I take myself to be, and who I'm not. And when we're, that's partly a developmental process. Like when we're young, we don't have the capacity to really include others in that sense of identification. Have you ever, maybe you've seen somebody, or maybe with your own children or someone, maybe you've tried to explain sharing to a two-year-old. You, know, you see that? Very patiently and calmly, we say, no, you've got to share. <laughs> Two-year-olds don't get sharing. They don't literally, they cognitively, they don't have the capacity to put themselves in the place of the other. What they are just starting to learn is mine. Right? They're to the expression of their own will. You know that the, the way two-year-olds say no. And this feels so powerful. They can say no. They're kind of learning to establish. And they're establishing a sense of identification, a sense of identity, a sense of me, a sense of who I am. This is what I am. And it's all here. And it's all me. There's no room for anyone else in that. They don't say, oh no, you go first. (laughs) They don't say, oh no, I've had my turn, you go now. No, they say, I want it. And that's a magical thing for them. You see that the kind of power, the delight in a two-year-old's eyes when they're getting to express their will in that way. And uh, if you look at, you know, a lot of work has been done in terms of developmental psychology to see how that process of identity develops in children. And I can't remember what age it is actually now. It's somewhere between four and six where they really start to be able to to actually develop the capacity for empathy. Empathy means to actually to include another in one's sense of identity such that one begins to care what the other's experiencing. So actually then the sharing or the, the kind of the empathizing or the imagining oneself a situation from another's point of view. It's a very sophisticated thing to be able to do. We start to actually care about another's well-being. 
it's like the, cir- the circle of who I am, or in this case, who we are, who's on the inside of my circle of identity, inc- increases. And as we grow up, you know, it's family and friends, there's like all these people that we particularly care about. They're on our side of the line of, of the, the kind of circle, or the grouping of who we identify with. And we'll do a lot of things for those people on the inside. You know, we'll ex- we'll uh, give them our time and our care and our money if they need it, and all kinds of great kindnesses. And then there's people on the outside of that circle, which we're a lot less willing often to extend ourselves that much for. And it seems to make just in a sort of intuitive way, it seems to make sense to us that. And yet, it's you know, it's kind of arbitrary in some way. My daughter, uh, uh, when she finished school last year, she, she went travelling for a year before she went to university, like people do. Right? And she went to Australia, where my wife had some kind of vague, long-lost cousin who she'd never met, etc., etc. So there was some theoretical family there. Right? And actually, if you were to try and find the blood link to the family, it was very, very vague. But... Suddenly, you've got this little label, family, they're in the circle. Right? They started to send us videos of their Christmas uh, gatherings together. We didn't recognize anyone, we didn't know these people, right? But okay, happy Christmas, everything. Okay. Then my daughter went to Australia. They say, come, come and stay. And very sweetly when she went to stay, they took a great deal of care of her and they supported her in all kinds of different ways and it was very kind, beautiful. But it, it's, it's a situation like that makes us sort of reflect maybe on the arbitrariness of that line. If she just turned up at the door as some stranger and said, Hi, can I stay a couple of weeks? Would you lend me your car? <laughs> what? No. And yet... Just because of a couple of emails across the sea, somehow she was on the inside the line. Then it's, come and stay for a couple of weeks. Use the car. And our sense of identity, you know, moves in different ways. We, we, and it tends to get stuck. We cling to a sense of identity in different ways that has some kind of us and them about it, those who are inside and those who are outside. And I mean, you look at the conflicts of the world around some arbitrary sense as if the people on my side of the line or in my, where inside where we've drawn the circle around religion or around nation-state or around political belief or something, the people inside my line, they're all right. And the ones on the other side of that line are so different that we can disrespect their human rights, kill them, invade, uh, etc., etc., etc. What a, what a you know, strange thing. We think we've kind of evolved so much as human beings, and yet we make that line somewhere. And make all kinds of assumptions about the people on this side of the line and the people on that side of the line. That's 
consciousness getting stuck in identity, in who is and who isn't. And, you know, that's, that's a process of evolution. You might see for yourself, where, where's that line? And it may be that there's, you know, there's some practical way in which it might fit. Right? I mean, I, you know, the home we live in is big enough for our family, right, for the people who live in us. It's not suggesting we stop drawing that line. It's like, just open all the doors. And anyone can come inside that line, and we've got to you know, feed everyone. And you know, it would, that would be difficult. So there's some sort of practical use of the boundary, but where do you, where do we make it in our minds that we basically shut people out of our hearts? So the evolution of identity. We tend to most strongly identify with this here and the well-being of this here, me. And then we kind of extend that to those closest to us. And we might extend it in different ways. But in some way we can see the kind of the evolution of our identity as, as that line, circle, boundary, if you like, growing and growing and growing until it it doesn't really have any meaning. From egocentric to family-centric to nation-centric, that's a common one. Most of us, we're probably beyond nation-centric. Maybe you'll be flying the flag next, is it next weekend? That's the... It's the chance to let the inner patriot out if you've got one. World centric. You know, I think probably there's more there's more human beings on the planet now with world centric consciousness than ever before. And that's part of our collective evolution. Like we saw with seeing that, that image of the planet and our sense of all living in one place. Again, if we go back a few generations, things were much more tribally divided than they are now. Now we can see a lot of frightful tribal divisions around nation states and, and around religious belief, etc. Because we get all the news from all the world all the time. But actually, there's a lot, a lot less. It doesn't look like it because we're so bombarded with information. But there's actually a lot less um, conflict and war proportional to the amount of inhabitants of the planet than at any previous time in history. There's more people with a sense of world-centric, consci- what we might call world-centric consciousness. And that is also a partial evolution to what we might call cosmocentric But the sense of life, which is what we identify with. Right? I don't think we identify with this body much once we've died. Right? It's the life of it we identify with. If you cut off a hand and put it in a jar, 
you won't identify with that hand so much. You won't be able to feel it, right? That's what identifying is. It's feeling the life in something. So, egocentric, two-year-old child, we can only feel the life here. And then there's that developmental capacity to feel the life, to feel the, the heart, to feel the feelings, to be concerned with the well-being of another. And that grows, and that grows, that feeling the life in. World-centric view. Knowing the humanity that we share, regardless of our differences in belief, colour, etc., etc., social background, that capacity to know, and not to take it for granted, because there's still you know, plenty of us capable of, who don't manage to really feel and know the life that we all share. And world-centric to cosmocentric. Knowing the life, feeling the life, not as an idea, in a limitless way. Limitless life. And it's known here, but here without a boundary, here without a limit. Here that's both so precise and immediate, and yet here that's so vast and limitless that it seems very, very clumsy to draw any kind of boundary in terms of what I am and what I'm not. And you just might sense for yourself in that, that feeling we have for expansiveness, for a universe full of life. Because it, it's not the different life. Right? It's not like there's one, one kind of life over here and a different kind of life over there. That's the arrogance of egocentric identity, that there's something particularly special here. Yeah, other people have feelings too, yeah. But my feelings... If we really, if we contemplate this life, however we feel it, bodily life, like we were exploring in the movement earlier, feeling life as we let emotions move, the life of plants and trees and the, the kind of just the vivacity all around us. If we contemplate the life expressed by others, and as you sit in the, in the groups and listen to others sharing what's going on for them. Oh, that's life being expressed there. Oh, this is life being expressed here. Oh, this is life being expressed all around. This life that informs our being, this life that we participate in, that we express, that we receive. How could we, if we really contemplate that, how could we fall for some boundaries within which one identifies and without which one shuts down or shuts out or shuts away? 
There's also a little piece in here, I think, about social identity and inclusion and exclusion. You know, we're a very predominantly white group of people in a predominantly white country, but not as predominantly white as, as us sitting here. And our, our culture is set up in a way so as to not really notice that. That's the nature of inclusion and exclusion, right? When you're in the majority, you don't really notice. Notice it when you're in the minority more. So, the sense of identity we have being white, being heterosexual, right? I'm not suggesting that everyone is heterosexual, but the feel of our culture is mostly heterosexual. The majority of people are heterosexual in the way the majority of people are white. And so whiteness and heterosexuality gets kind of reflected back to us as normal. And so then it's harder to see. When you're in the majority, it's harder to see those to whom whiteness or heterosexuality looks um, looks like it's on another like it's inside that circle of identity I was speaking about. So I think it's actually important for us. I mean, if you to the degree that you're white, to the degree that you might be heterosexual, to the degree that you might be a man which also has more visibility, more, um, you know, culture is more orientated towards recognition of maleness. Then actually I think we have a responsibility to try to be extra sensitive to what it's like. It's hard to have the experience as, the, as one of the majority set. It's like it's a strange way of putting it. It's hard to, to... You have to try extra hard to have the sense of what it's like to be homosexual in a culture that predominantly reflects heterosexuality. To be non-white in a culture that predominantly reflects and acknowledges and validates whiteness. It's a little different around uh, gender issues because the numbers are much more even. Although... The same thing applies to a certain extent because maleness is validated more. It's hard, you have to try harder as a man to, to kind of get what it might be like for a woman uh, in, in, a, in an environment, like a lot of work environments, that predominantly reflects and validates masculinity or male qualities. So it's a little bit of an aside. But... What happens is that the people who are, tend to be culturally in a minority, non-white or non-heterosexual, uh, they're the ones that end up having to, to raise the issues of exclusion. And that's actually a bit unfair because they're already excluded in some way. The real responsibility for that, I think, as an expression of the dissolving the boundaries of identity of us and them. 
What would be really good if the would is if the onus of responsibility actually was taken on more by the majority set. Okay, where were we? So, I, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, the with kind of uh, sort of regular Buddhist teachings, like the teachings of about non not self non self. Maybe if you if you haven't heard the term anatta or not self, maybe you could just raise your hand. Okay. Okay, thank you. So, blimey, time's going fast. There's a rhetoric, right, of cell, of, and it's, it's all rhetoric. It is or it isn't. There's a, ret- a rhetoric, a view. It's somewhere consciousness gets stuck. I am. Or I'm not. So if we just make it very alive for us, here, here I am sitting, it seems to be self-evident. Right? What's here? Well, I am. So let's start there. It seems to be self-evident. But what do we mean? We open up this, this sense of self. Oh, there's that liveliness that I was just mentioning. There's a liveliness here. And then when I, if I kind of look for signifiers of that liveliness, I can find a whole bunch of stuff around uh, ideas about who I am, right? They go to my history and uh, all kinds of other things. But we're, we're being invited to look carefully. And the first way of looking carefully is to introduce some doubt to I am as a solid thing. Most teachings affirm existence in some way. God. In the beginning, there was God. That's an affirmation of something at the very, very heart of existence. So that falls on the side of it is. There is something. Some teachings, in trying to encourage us away from getting caught in it is, because of the way the language is, you can only end up, if you try to, to point away from it is, where do you end up? It isn't. So we end up with the teaching of not-self. Teaching of, that encourages us to look at all the things that I take to be me and to look closely and see, well, what is that? I take body to be me. Except me suggests some constancy. We assume that body has constancy. Except as we've been paying attention to it, it's so alive, it's so changing. And you know, like this morning when I got out of the shower, I cut my toenails. If body is me, is there less of me now? You know? It's a strange thing. So assumption says, this is who I am. This is me. Body is me. And yet, well, one seems to be changing and ageing and greying and uh, wrinkling and things. And then I regularly cut bits off. doesn't seem to make much difference. 
Or we think that mind is me, which also implies some kind of ownership, some kind of control. And yet, actually, when we've been paying attention to our minds, mind sounds a little strange, but mind seems to have a mind of its own. It doesn't, you know, any kind of the arrogance of control or ownership kind of runs out when I see it, it just does its own thing. Someone was speaking in the group this morning about sitting in meditation and suddenly they had some image of chickens in welly boots. <laughs> Who produced that? And that was that me, whoever the me was for whom it happened. Right? Is me that nuts? There's a lot of our experience just seems to happen all by itself. That I can't really ascribe ownership or control to. And yet, so if I step back a little bit, if I hold, if I unstick consciousness a little bit from the certainty that of I am this, because what whatever it is that I take myself as being, I am this. It's, it's kind of slipping away from me. It's changing. It's dissolving. So I say, well, let's unstick that a little bit and actually stay in the aliveness of what's happening without that rigid assumption. But at the same time, let's not go to the other rigid assumption. Oh, there's nothing here. There's not the self. There's, no, there's nothing. Let's see, what do we actually find? We find a sense of self. Right? As we sit here speaking, if we're sitting up here or listening, if we're sitting down there, there's a clear sense of self here. If we put aside our positions, put aside what we think we are or what we think we're not, things get a little bit more mysterious. What's this experience? If you don't rely on a sense of what is or what isn't. What is this liveliness? What is it? What is it that's hearing and seeing and thinking and feeling? What is it? What is it? No one's ever managed to say satisfactorily. Because if we're to say, the saying will just be an either an it is or an it isn't. But what is it? Sometimes we say mind. Oh, it's all mind. Mind's a little bit unsatisfactory because... It seems very heady. Right? When you think of mind, what do you say? What's the associations with mind? Where is mind? It's good contemplation, actually. Where is mind? But the usual idea is, well, mind seems to be up here somewhere. It's not really up here, but that's the felt sense of it. That's what scientists are still unpicking the brain, still trying to find mind, as if it's in here somewhere. Hello. So let's ditch mind. What is it? This, this receiver of experience. 
Some would like to emphasize different qualities. We say it's all heart, love. This, all of this is love. Beautiful. But heart also is a little kind of uh, biologically referenced. Heart's in here somewhere. Is this is all of life kind of coming in here? No. Sometimes in Thailand they try to get round it by talking about chitta. Chitta is this, well, chitta is the Pali word the Buddha used. So it's tr- sometimes translated as mind, sometimes as ha- heart, sometimes, trying to avoid the dichotomy, as heart-mind. This heart-mind. It's quite good. This heart-mind. As the receiver of all experience. It's a bit clumsy. Well, what else might we, might we find? Let's let it be an alive exploration. Psyche. This, was, this is the thread of my thoughts about this. Psyche. It's not bad, psyche. Right? It's a bit less specific than mind. Although the, the connotations are a little, still a little cognitive, I find. Then I found out that psyche is in the Greek. The word we end up in English is soul. Soul. Hey, soul is where it's happening. Actually, I really like the word soul. Soul's got a terrible bad reputation among Buddhists. And if you just have to mention the word soul in here, and you can see the statue up there frowns. So, partly I, this is a kind of mission to reclaim the word soul. What, because what is, soul's got a mysterious meaning. Right? So I just invite you to let that in. What's th- this? Because the, this, the thisness of this is tangible, right? This sense of self, this sense of here where it's all happening. And that's our explanation. What is this? Soul, of course, has got some uh, overtones, uh, some kind of religious overtones. It's got some, something to do with eternal damnation as well, which doesn't sound so good. And there's something eter- eternal, eter- the eternal soul, which gets a little confused. So maybe we can't really land with soul. So, But what do we mean? What's the feeling for that? It's like... A field of experience. Oh, all, all this, this, this being alive, this seeing, responding, feeling, thinking, it's happening in a field of experience. Again, the language is a little difficult because a field sounds like something that has boundaries, hedges, right, at the end. And the edge. Boundaryless field of experience. Oh, now it's just getting a bit uh, wordy now, right? So if we give up on the labels, the labels which will always fall into it is or it isn't, but can we f- just sense ourselves now as this boundaryless field of experience? You don't need to try and make it boundaryless. 
God, look, there's this field of hearness. If you pay attention to this field of hearness, you'll find the impulse to make it into something. Oh, it is, or it isn't, isn't it? If you don't let yourself make it into something, what I am and what that is that I'm experiencing, if we just don't let ourselves be stuck there, one way to do that is to listen to the space in between what I think I am as the experiencer and what I think there is as the experienced. Like the bird song that's been accompanying us through the retreat. Listen to the space between the hearer and the heard. If we don't rely on the ideas of what is and what isn't, Can you really find the place where the heard, what's heard ends and what's hearing begins? All we really can find is intimacy with the experience. Maybe this intimacy is more important than any idea of who it's happening to. Maybe this intimacy is where our questions come to rest. Where our boundaries dissolve. Where our restlessness fades. where our searching ends. This intimacy, friends, where consciousness can't get stuck, where there's nothing to cling to, This intimacy, open and free, this is life, this is our life, this is right here.
There's half an hour of wide open intimacy available between now and tea time. Enjoy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.